0: You know, as people who go to church and as someone who's been to seminary, uh, it's easy to begin to translate God's truth into a subject matter. To take all of what we're learning about God and and boil it down to facts that we're supposed to remember. Uh, But one of the things that I think is so powerful is to know that theology, in knowledge of who God is, is intimately practical for our everyday lives. Uh, These stories that were shared up on the stage on these cards, they're not there because we've somehow forced God to act because of our faith. That's not how it works. The things that you've seen worked out up here on the stage are there because of who Jesus Christ is. He acts out of an overflow of His character and of His person. So the reason why we have healing is because He's a healing God. The reason why we have strength in difficulty is because He's a mighty God. The reason why we have comfort in times of difficulty is because He's an encourager. The reason why we have truth in dark times is because He's a truthful God. The reason why we have salvation is in the midst of our sin is because he's a gracious God. Theology is intimately tied to our everyday lives and having a clear picture of who Christ is is essential for our everyday living as Christians. Uh, You know, I had had a professor in seminary named uh, John Hanna and Dr. Hanna would say many things that students would write down and remember, but one of the things that he said that uh, sticks out in my mind so much. He says, when I preach I want to place a category in everyone's mind called Christ and if the Spirit would bless it to make it beautiful so that it would influence your affections because people will do and choose what they like. You know, over the next four weeks what we're going to do is we are going to look at the person of Christ as he is revealed to us in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, the book of the Revelation. We're specifically going to look at Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we're going to see that the person of Christ is more than enough for all of our needs. In those two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus pens letters to seven real-life churches Seven churches that he signs with a little different signature each time. When Jesus signs these letters, he says, this is from the one who blank, and he reveals a part of his character. He signs the letters in different ways because he wants each church to know that the person of who he is can greatly impact their lives as they're living them. There's something going on in each of these churches that Christ reminds that church of something about his character that applies directly to their situation. What's interesting is that each of those letters to those seven real life churches that stretched across Asia was that each letter ended with the phrase, let him who has an ear hear what Christ says to the churches. That means that those letters were not just intended to be read and understood by seven churches that existed 2,000 years ago, but that those letters were given and these signatures were signed so that those who would read them today, right now, at Norman, Oklahoma, and Wildwood Community Church, so that we could see and understand more of who the person of Christ is, and so that it would influence our life in a significant way. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at some of the things that we learn about Christ from these signatures to these seven letters. And as we we see and we understand those, uh, hopefully the our affections will be influenced as we see the beautiful Christ as revealed to us in these two chapters. Each week we're going to focus on a little different theme uh, that's going to have something to do with some of what we saw up here. Uh, But this week we're going to talk about the Father's love for us. We're going to talk about how God the Father, through Jesus Christ, loves each of us, and how deep that love is, and and the kind of love that that is. And the deep and the kind of love that Christ has for us is revealed to us, I think, in a couple of ways, by looking at the letters that Jesus sent to the churches in Sardis and Ephesus, as he tells them that the kind of love and the kind of relationship that he wants with them is something that is more than skin deep. And we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So let's start with the letter that Christ has to the church in Sardis in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Let me read those verses for us. Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Hear the way Christ signs his letter? Right off the bat. We we like to sign our letters at the end. In this culture, they sign their letters at the beginning. Jesus' signature has to do with the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Then he says this. He says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, in this letter to the church in Sardis, Jesus begins and says that this is a letter from me, Jesus Christ, the one who holds the seven spirits of God. Now, now, now we see that and we wonder, what what is that talking about, the seven spirits of God? I think that what Christ is trying to describe in this situation was that this was the letter from Jesus Christ, the God of the Spirit. This idea of the seven spirit of God is the idea of the full spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is at the control of Christ. The Holy Spirit, which doesn't have a a physical body, the God of spirit, in other words. This is a letter from Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord over the spirit. It's interesting, this was hearkening back to something that was prophesied in the book of Isaiah concerning the Messiah. And In the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 2 to 5, it says this, Says the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. You know, that, that Isaiah 11 passage talks about the one who will be Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ, is the one on whom the full Spirit of God will come and rest. He's not someone who merely looks at externals and judges only by what he sees or what he hears, but he's the God who is of spirit, who understands everything in the spiritual realm. In other words, as as Jesus Christ looks on our scene this morning, he sees more than just what we're wearing. He sees more than just what we've said today. He sees more than just our appearance. He knows our spirits as well. Jesus Christ, the God of spirit, writes a letter to the church in Sardis. And what does he say? What he says is he says that he's this, this guy. He says, you know what? My desire for you is more than just that you would have a Christian reputation. He said, I'm the God of spirit, and my desire is not just that you would be people who would pursue me only in your reputation, only in what others see, but that you would be a people who would pursue me at the core of who you are in the spiritual places of your lives, the unseen areas that you would follow me, that you would know me. Now the rest of this letter uh, un- unfolds and, and lets us know kind of what was going on with that church in Sardis. After saying that this is the letter from the one that holds the seven spirits, he says, I know your deeds and that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. What Christ was saying, the, the, the God of spirit was saying was, I know that in your, the town in which you live, you're known to be Christians. You have a reputation of being right with me. But the reality is that it's just a facade. The reality is it's just external. The reality is it's just a reputation. And Christ says, I'm the God of spirit. I desire so much more than that. I desire to have a relationship with you that goes beyond the externals to a deep and spiritual bond. That's what Christ is desiring And yet they are just withholding this spiritual or Christian reputation. Uh, Listen to what scholar Andrew Tate wrote in the 1800s. I love how people who wrote in the 1800s write. They say things in better ways than we do. Um, But Andrew Tate said this about the people of Sardis. He says, The people of Sardis were idolaters, this is talking about the city of Sardis, not necessarily the church. So, the people of Sardis were idolaters. They worshiped the mother goddess Cybele. The fragments of the temple that was erected to her honor still remain. And there are two stately columns with Ionic capitals, which are fully 60 feet high and about six and a third feet in diameter, whose bases are deeply embedded in the rubbish that has fallen down from the citadel. Her worship was of the most debasing character. And orgies like those of Dionysus were practiced at the festivals held in her honor. Listen to what it says about the city of Sardis. Sins of the foulest and darkest impurity were committed on those occasions. And when we think of a small community of Christians rescued from such abominable idolatry, living in the midst of scenes of the grossest depravity, with early associations and companionships and connections, all exerting a force in the direction of heathenism, It may be wondered that the few members of the church in Sardis were not drawn away altogether and swallowed up in the great vortex. That's how Andrew Tate, who studied the city of Sardis, described their situation. Sardis was a rough place. There were a lot of bad things happening there. And so in in the midst of 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 a place that dark, it wouldn't have been difficult for those who called upon the name of Christ to appear different to their community. It's not like this was Bible Belt. This was a a heathenistic idol-worshiping town. And so anyone that didn't participate in the heathenistic idol-worshiping practices on the outside would have stood out and had a reputation that would have made them distinct. And the people in the city of Sardis had some deeds that were different from the community around them. They were doing some things or not doing some things that caused their lives to be distinct from their neighbors. And yet Christ looks down at that and He says, you know what, I did not come to bleed and die on your behalf so that your wives would look just a little different from your neighbors. I didn't come to initiate a relationship with you just so that you would attend a different temple to worship on the weekend. Jesus says, I'm the God of spirit. I desire more than just you to have a different reputation than your neighbors. I desire that you would have a love relationship with me that would be deep and that would be spiritual. And then he goes on to describe what he would call them to do in response. But I began to think, oh, as I read that, just about our lives. I think about Norman and, and Wildwood and, and, and myself and What does it mean to have a life today that is just based on a Christian reputation? Is it possible that we too could just have a facade up in our spiritual life? I think it is. It's possible that we could attend the right church on the weekends. It's possible that we could have an ichthus on our car. It's possible that we could have the right radio stations on our dial. It's possible that we could have all of the lingo down, it's possible that our reputation could be such in the community that when they see us walk into the Christian, Christian businessman's lunch, they say, I'm glad that he's here. That's a good man. It's possible for us to have a reputation in our city or in our state that is different from the reality of our relationship with God. It's possible to do that, I know, because in my life I've experienced just that. It's possible to have a reputation that says one thing, but a spiritual life that is dead. Jesus writes to the church in Sardis and says, I have something better for you. I am the God of spirit, and I desire a deep and spiritual relationship with you. Not just a facade. Now, I went to Russia several years ago um, and uh, spent the summer in, in Volgograd. But when we landed in Moscow, we got a tour of the city. Uh, on, on a bus as we were going to the hotel, and, and the man that was giving us the tour had lived in Moscow all his life. Uh, and we drove down this one street, and he said, do you see this street right here? I said, yeah. He said, this is the very street that uh, President H.W. Bush had ridden down uh, on a visit to Moscow some years earlier after he was elected president. And I said, well, that's interesting. He says, well, what is really interesting, he said, look closer at the walls that are on this street. So we began to look. Those walls on that street, he said, had been painted just two stories tall. The buildings actually went up, you know, 20, 30, 40 stories tall. But they had had a whitewash coat of paint over the bottom two layers. And he said that what they did was they didn't have enough money to renovate the city when H.W. Bush came to visit. So in order to give the appearance of prosperity, They put a fresh coat of paint two stories up on the roads that he would be traveling. And I think about that story, and I think about the situation in Sardis, and I think about the situation in our lives, and I think many times our lives are coated with paint two stories up. We keep up an appearance in public so that those around us in our Christian circles or in our workplace or whatever might say, that person has the reputation, has a good reputation for Christ. And and know that I don't think that having a good reputation for Christ is a bad thing. But know this, Jesus wants more than that. He wants more than just two levels of paint in our lives. He wants more than us just to have a good reputation. He wants a real, deep, and spiritual relationship with each of us. And so he reminds the church in Sardis that he's the God of Spirit. If you're here today and you're living out a life that is merely based on a reputation, remember this truth, that Jesus Christ is the God of Spirit. Jesus wrote a second letter. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Over in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, Jesus writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. And to the people in the church in Ephesus, he says this. says, to so the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. There's his signature. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. That you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent, and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place but you have this in your favor you hate the practices of the nicolaitans which i also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes i will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of god so jesus writes a letter to the church in ephesus this is the same church in ephesus that received the letter from paul some 35 years before this letter comes from Christ himself. And to the people in Ephesus, Jesus signs it this way. He says, I am the one who holds the stars in my hand, and I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. We we hear that and we think, that is a bizarre description. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, But the reality is that that strange symbol of stars and lampstands is explained to us just a few verses before. You see, these letters were to be delivered through the agency of the Apostle John. And in chapter 1, Jesus appeared to the Apostle John while he was in prison on the island of Patmos. And when Jesus appeared to him, he appeared to him in a very strange way. He appeared to him as a God who was walking among some lampstands and holding some stars in his hand, just as he titles the letter to the Ephesians. And in chapter 1 and verse 20 this example of of, uh, stars and lampstands is explained. It says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see, Jesus was writing to the church in Ephesus, and he was saying, this letter is coming to you From the one who holds the seven stars, or there's two ideas on that. that The stars, meaning the angels that serve over these churches, or possibly even the stars representing the pastors of those churches. The messengers, literally would be the translation. The messengers, the pastors, or the angels, any of those possibilities of those churches, Jesus holds in his hand. But he's also walking among the lampstands, which represent those churches. What Jesus is saying to the Ephesians is, this letter is coming to you from Myself who is among you. Jesus wasn't close to the lampstands. Jesus wasn't seeing the lampstands from a distance. Jesus was among the lampstands. Jesus was among the churches. And to a church like Ephesus, they might have begun to think that Christ was distant. They might have begun to think that, that Christ was nowhere to be found that he had lived out his life on the earth, but then he had ascended into heaven, and there was this great chasm now that separated them. Where was Christ in their daily life? You ever felt like that? I have. But to that group of people who wondered where Christ was in this moment of great difficulty, to that group of people who wondered where Christ was in their life, Jesus writes them a letter and says, This letter is from the one who is right there among you. And he he titles this letter to them, reminding them that he's among them, because their relationship with him had become one of just duty. Jesus wrote them this letter to tell them, Look, I desire from you more than just your duty. I desire from you more than just that you would be doing the things that you know are right. I desire from you more than just that you would be going through the motions and believing the right things on on your doctrinal statement and doing the right things in terms of helping others. I desire more than just that level of duty in your life. Because the Ephesians were people who had all of those things going for them. Look at what it says as it as the church in Ephesus is is described. Jesus says that their deeds and their hard work and their perseverance that He's aware of. In other words, these were people who were living out and doing good things. It means that they were not just doing things for a day or a week, but they had been doing them for a number of years. They were persevering, maybe even through persecution or difficulty. They were keeping on doing the right things. He goes on and says that, They were believing the right things. They weren't tolerating wicked men. They weren't tolerating the teaching of the Nicolaitans who were professing some false doctrine in their midst. The Ephesians were doing the right things. They were believing the right things. They were opposing the right people. They had a lot of those things uh, built up in their lives. And yet Jesus says this to them in verse 4. He says, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. What Jesus was saying was, you're believing the right things, you're doing the right things, you're opposing the right people, and yet you have no passion in your relationship with me. Our interactions have become just about duty and not about relating to one another as our awesome Savior and God. They were missing that. And Jesus called them on, and he said, I have this against you, that you have forgotten your first love. Uh, he, he goes on and, and tells them that if they don't repent of that, that he will come and remove the lampstand from their place. He's saying, you know what, if you don't repent of this, uh, of, of this, of these actions, if you don't return to a love relationship with me and remember that I desire more than just your actions and your beliefs, he said, if, if you if you really want to return to this love relationship with me, if you don't do that, then I will remove your lampstand or I will remove your influence in your community. Now, that's, that's not all that surprising, is it? Jesus wasn't saying that they were going to lose their place in heaven. He wasn't saying that they were going to lose their, their spot as a child of God, but he was saying that their influence in their community, their ability to shine as light among those around them was going to diminish if they didn't have a relationship with him that was passionate. You know, it's interesting that, that he would say that. I, I thought about this. I, uh, summer is a time whenever I get to be a part of a lot of weddings. And uh, it's, it's, I love it. I love being a part of weddings and seeing, you know, a, a bride and a groom come together. Uh, it's just an awesome, awesome time of celebration. Uh, but one of the things that's always interesting to me is that You know, a wedding is a ceremony before God where vows are exchanged. But the thing that makes people married legally in the state of Oklahoma or Texas or Missouri or wherever their wedding is performed is that there's a license that is signed. It's a contract, a contract for two people to join together in life. Now we believe it's more than that, spiritually speaking. But legally speaking, there's a contract that is signed. But yet hundreds of people will show up to see that contract signed. This may be the only time in our lives when that many people will gather to watch you sign a piece of paper. It's really something. And why do we do that? Why do people not gather in droves to watch you sign the loan papers on your new car? Why do people not gather together in in, in hundreds to watch you sign the mortgage on your house or sign a new cell phone contract However, that did happen for some of you if you got the iPhone on Friday. Uh, But but why is it that people will come in droves, in hundreds, to watch two people enter into the covenant of marriage, but not into the covenant of a mortgage or a car payment? The reason why is obvious. There's passion in the wedding. It's about love. It's not about just a contract. It's not just a, a, a piece of paper that is signed. It's two people coming together who are passionate about each other. Right? I had the, the joy of officiating at a wedding last night, and, and and while I'm going through their vows, it's just they're they're just bouncing, you know. I mean, they're just they're excited. They can't believe they're together, and their 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 love and their passion is just, just flowing out of them. I mean, you can just you can just see it on their faces. That's why people come. People are attracted to passion. The same thing is true in, in, in the church. When believers are passionate in their relationship with God, beyond just a reputation, beyond just duty, people around them take notice. Have you ever been around someone who's passionate about their relationship with God? It just warms your whole being. You want to know what's going on in their life they, they're, they're passionate about. It. Not, not fake passion, genuine passion. They, you get a sense when they pray that they know the Lord. Not just that they're saying something they heard someone else say. That doesn't mean that they're saying it more eloquently. It just means that you can tell they're talking to God. Passion is attractive. Passion is what we want. I, you know, I have never met a person who has said, what I really want is just a Christian uh, facade, reputation, exterior, and I really want just a, a, a relationship with God that's just based on duty. You know, if you really start talking to people, that's not what any of us want. None of us want this passionless, flat, two-story-up paint relationship with God. That's not what we want. What we want is something deep. What we want is something spiritual. What we want is a love relationship, a passionate relationship with God. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. And because that's what we want, we need to remember the person of Jesus Christ. Because we don't have to manufacture love from God. We don't have to jump through hoops so that God will love us. How deep is the Father's love for me? We don't have to to force God's hand in some way. It's part of His very character. Jesus Christ is the God among us. He's among us because He loves us, and He desires a passionate relationship with us. We don't have to manufacture a deep and not a superficial relationship with God. We don't have to manufacture that because He is the God of spirit. When we think of what we really want, the things that we really need, the things that are more than enough for us, They're found in the person of Christ. You know, I just have to confess that I've been in both camps. I've been in the church in Sardis, and I've been in the church of Ephesus. I've been known to have a relationship with God that exceeds a reality. And I've been known to do the right things and yet not have any kind of passion in my relationship with God. You know, as I talk to people, I think that I'm not alone in that. And yet the person of Christ is more than enough for all of us. What Jesus asks of people in his word as he writes these letters, he says, remember, repent, and return. Remember who I am. Repent of this idea that just the facade is enough. Repent of the idea that just duty is enough. And come back to me for what you really desire. A deep and personal relationship with the living God. When we do that and when we come to him, we find that he's more than enough for our needs. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us today to look at your word. We thank you for the testimonies that we have seen that remind us that you weren't just the God who walked among the lampstands of the churches of Asia, but you're the God who walks among the lampstand of Wildwood, that you're close to us and that you have touched our lives. Father, I pray that we would be men and women who would turn away from our independence and would run to you to provide for all of our needs. We pray these things in Jesus' name.